Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. did not marry a bridezilla. I'm proud to say that I was not that final piece in the puzzle that Jennifer had been planning for our wedding for her entire life. We actually planned our wedding together, but there was one piece that she said absolutely no to, and it was probably because she thought I was joking. I asked to walk down to the aisle to the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme song, and she said no. And I can't imagine why she would say that. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a game changer for me when I was a kid. I remember watching it for the first time and just my eyes were open to a new way of seeing life. Why? In 1981, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas introduced us to this iconic character. His name was Henry Walton Jones Jr. He is an archaeologist and professor at Marshall College. And Dr. Jones is invited into a secret meeting with two Army intelligence officers who say that the Nazis are up to something. They're trying to find something. We don't exactly know what it is, but we believe they're trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. The Nazis believed that the Ark of the Covenant would make their army completely invincible and indestructible. And Indiana Jones' friend, Marshall Brody, says this, For nearly 3,000 years, men have been searching for the lost Ark. It is something to be not taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. It's nothing you've ever gone after before. When I was a kid, we would go out in the backyard and we would try to be Indiana Jones. Of course, we would all fight, two, you know, three boys trying to fight who could be Indiana Jones. I always ended up being short round, if you can imagine that. And if you didn't get that reference, you are cinematically dead to me. Seriously, you need to get up and go see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, actually, it comes in the next one, Temple of Doom. Okay, anyways. So, anyways, uh, okay, so we, we always fought towards that. But what is this idea behind this? It's this idea that Indiana Jones is going to go trying to find and discover the Lost Ark. Well, what is the Ark? That's the focus of our text this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. There's always a connection. I promise there is. There's this interesting thing that happens within 1 Samuel is that you have this dynamic story, the introduction of the primary character, Samuel, but then the author and narrator takes a break for literally three chapters to focus in on this thing we know as the Ark of the Covenant. But what is it? The Ark of the Covenant is by far one of the most highly sought after sacred religious relics of the ancient world. Folks have been looking for this thing for literally 3,000 years. What happened to it and what is it? The ark was formed as Israel was in a time of the the wandering in the wilderness. So those 40 years that they're going about not using a GPS or stopping to ask for directions, uh, they're 40 years in the desert. They construct this thing called the ark. And basically picture a huge rectangular box, but like covered in pure gold. And on top of it were two cherubims with their wings pointed towards each other. I think we have an image of it up here. 
And you can see that it's this in-between area. It was, it was known as the mercy seat. It was believed that the presence and spirit of God dwelled between those two cherubims. It was a holy relic. It was this amazing thing that was made of, of pure gold that, that, that people did not want to go near it. They didn't want to touch it. In fact, there's stories that we will encounter later in 1 Samuel where somebody does touch it and they literally drop dead on the spot. What was in it? That's something that's also been up to speculation. Uh, it's, it's known that a lot of people believe that the, the tablets from the Ten Commandments were within the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that some of the manna and quail that God provided for the people as they wandered in the wilderness. Also, some believe that the staff of Aaron, Moses' brother, and the first high priest of Israel was within the Ark. And then there's a lot of other speculation that what was inside. But what the people of Israel viewed this as, as the presence of God on earth. And so when they were wandering in the wilderness, the Ark literally would travel a thousand feet in front of the people. It was God leading the way as they went throughout this countryside. When they went into the battle, and as we see later on in our text, they would bring the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know if they literally believed they were bringing the presence of God, or if it was something to give them encouragement that God was with them as they went into battle. And so here is the ark, the sacred and holy relic of the people of Israel. It remains in the tabernacle, in this holy tent where the people would come and worship. We, we, we saw it last week. What, we learned that Samuel was sleeping next to it when he was a boy. And so what's going to happen with the ark? Well, this interesting thing happens where the ark is, is lost. Well, it was stolen from Israel. That's why this text can easily be labeled as raiders of the ark. So take a look at, at 1 Samuel 4, verse 1. It reads, Now Israel went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Apek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who, was ki- who killed 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let's bring up the Ark of the Lord of the Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh. They brought, the ba- the, brought back the Ark of the Covenant for the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. So I'm sure you can catch up what's going on in this text. Israel engages in a battle with the Philistine, and they're completely annihilated. What do we learn about the Philistines so far? Well, they were a far superior militaristic society at this time. Israel is fighting with bronze weapons. Most likely, this is a militia of farmers that came together to stand against the Philistines, and the Philistines are fighting with iron and with chariots. Who do you think won that battle? Well, the Philistines win, and they completely annihilate the people. So the people are licking their wounds, and while they're licking their wounds and trying to prepare for the next battle, they ask a very difficult theological question. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God not save us? So instead of taking time to actually pray and discern, they jump to a theological conclusion of what they have done. They're depending on the faith of their forebears. They say, let's bring the ark with us. That will guarantee a win. Well, that's the first thing we can learn from this text is discernment matters. Taking time to pray and discern and not make spiritual guesses in our life matters. Do we take time to do that each day? Do we take time to pause and to pray and to listen and to allow God to speak to us about God and what he would have us do in this day and this time, who he'd have us be today? 
For many of us, we live our entire life spiritual guessing, just shooting from the hip on what God could possibly want us to do. And like the the Israelites in this moment, we actually are depending on the faith of those who came before us, their stories, the things that they told us, instead of our true personal interaction with God. That's Israel in this moment. What did our forebears do? What did our fathers do? Well, they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle, and God allowed them to win. Are we taking time to pause and discern what God would have us to be and to do? And we're going to quickly learn that this will fail. That because they didn't discern, because they didn't actually truly know God, this will fail on them. Over the last year and a half, I've uh, done work as an independent agent for Stevenson Insurance Agency. I'm actually a licensed insurance agent in the state of North Carolina. That is not a cheap and shameless plug for you to come get a no-obligation quote for me, but if you do want to talk about your home and auto policy and how I can save you money. One of the things that I've learned from this is that uh, there is uh, endless amounts of ways that people try to commit insurance fraud, (laughs) and a lot of them, it is just absolutely stupendous. Okay, so there was this man who was uh, charged with a crime. And his wife comes up with this brilliant scheme. So here's what they're going to do. They're going to fake his death. So they go to the cemetery. They dig up a body. They bring it to the house. They set the house on fire. But this brilliant couple didn't realize that a medical examiner can tell the difference between a male cadaver and a female cadaver. That's right. They dug up the body of an old woman and put it in their house and set it ablaze. There was this another other couple uh, about 10 years ago in the Northeast that... Uh, they were in debt, and so they were thinking, what is the best way we can rake in all kinds of funds? And so this is what they would do. This is a pattern they would do. They would eat shards of glass and then go out to eat at a restaurant, hours later go to the emergency room complaining about stomach pains, and then file an insurance claim against the restaurant saying that their restaurant had glass within them. It worked for a couple years until they kept repeating this, and they eventually started coming across the same insurance companies for this restaurant. And so not only did they land themselves in an emergency room with severe trauma to their intestines, but then they actually landed themselves in prison for a long, long time. You can't fool insurance companies. They've seen it all. Insurance fraud. You just don't even try it. That's what Israel is doing in this moment. Israel is about to be called on what I call their holy fraud. They did not know God. They did not serve God. They did not actually take time to listen to God, and they're about to be called out on their holy fraud. They're about to be called out on a assuming that this is what would bring them victory, that bringing this religious artifact, this this relic, this icon of God into battle would, would be a surefire way for them to win, and they're going to get called out on it. In fact, we're going to learn, and we're going to skip over a few verses, when they bring the ark into the camp, the, the, the men of Israel are so enthralled that they're shouting, and the Philistines hear this, and they become to be, to be absolutely terrified, but it says it actually brings resolve to the Philistines, and this is what happens in verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had died. The, the author is so careful in using the word slaughter here. It's the word that means crushed, plagued with death, absolute devastation. Israel is called out on their holy fraud. They believe that if they could manipulate and bring God with them, that God would bring them a surefire win, and it brings them absolute devastation. We read a couple weeks ago what happens after this, that, that news about the defeat comes to Eli, the priest. 
And upon hearing that his sons had died, nothing happens. But upon hearing that the ark of God had been stolen by the Philistines, you remember what happened? Eli fell backwards and broke his neck and died. We learned that as the news of the ark being stolen comes to, to Hophni's wife, that she goes into labor early and gives birth to a child and names him Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. Anyone here have a fear of puppets? Anybody? Okay, well, there's an actual technical term for it. There's like a fear for everything. Check this one out. It's automatonophobia. It's actually like a fear of puppets, but it also extends to a fear of dolls, wax figurines, and mannequins. Yeah. So there are people that literally have a fear, and I'm not making fun of this, but have a fear that of, of, of an actual inanimate object that, that we control and bring to life. It literally brings all sorts of different varying degrees of fear to people. Sometimes it's just clammy skin. Sometimes it's anxious feelings. Sometimes it's elevated heartbeat. Some people, it's a full-blown-out panic attack. So I'm guessing these types of people are not going to go see Pinocchio. They're not going to see Chucky. They're probably not going to watch the Muppets or anything because it brings down a reign of terror in their life. It's fascinating that we can be scared of things that we literally bring to life and control. That's Israel in this moment. Israel believes that they can use God as a puppet to manipulate God in whatever way they desire. And so their desire is, we want to win this battle. Let's bring the presence of God into this victory. And it will be a way that we will come away as champions in this moment. You can't manipulate and manage God. You just can't do it. You can't control God, telling God what to do, telling God that you are going to win this victory. But since the dawn of time, people have been saying, for God and for country, as they go into battle, believing that somehow they have God on their side, that they are going to win this victory. I wonder how many times in life that we think we can ordain something by praying that God would give us what we desire, and we go into it expecting that to happen, but it never happens. How often do we believe that we can say a prayer or speak a word, allowing God to be managed and manipulated into what we desire? You can't control and manipulate God. Israel thought they could simply bring this ark into the battle. Think again. And they were absolutely decimated in this moment. And we can see that their true desire was not even around the ark because we're going to learn they don't even put like a rescue mission together to go get the ark back. They just kind of let it go. No, I'm not going to break out in the song. How often do we do this in our life? We have this expectation that, that we can manage and manipulate and be a puppet master to God and what we desire. Tony Cartledge, the Samuel scholar, writes this. What Israel learned from this episode is that you cannot control God. You cannot manipulate God. You cannot tell God what to do. God will be God. If God is not free to act as God wills, then God is not God. We want to believe that God is big enough to conquer all our enemies, work all of our miracles, and yet small enough to come running when we snap our fingers. It simply doesn't work that way. But that doesn't mean that we don't try. Since the dawn of creation, human beings have tried to manipulate and manage the gods as they perceive them. And so we've always offered sacrifices to God. Sometimes it's an inanimate object. Sometimes it's an animal. Sometimes it's human beings that we have offered to God and hoping that God would do what we want and we desire. All of it at the end of the day is to believe that God will bring us what we desire. We want to manage and manipulate the gods. And oftentimes, we try to bring holy relics into our everyday battles in order to act like God is on our side. And one of the ways that many people do this today is with the Bible. 
try to carry the Bible into some sort of theological debate, some sort of social debate, as if by wielding this leather-bound book that God is on our side. There's an actual term for this. It's called bibolatry. It literally is making an idol out of the Bible. Have you ever used scripture in such a way that you try to use it to argue against somebody, but you take that scripture completely out of context because it had that one word that you were looking for? We often do this within scripture. We take scripture out of context, we don't focus within the scripture, and we try to use the word of God to manage and manipulate people and make an argument against them. This is making an idol out of the Bible. It's believing that the God of creation is literally limited between the two leather bounds of a book. God is far beyond the words we see within scripture. The God of creation cannot be bound to words within a book. What other relics do we try to bring in? What other kind of religious artifacts do we try to bring in to manipulate and manage to use God against what we desire? That's one of the things that are facing within churches and denominations today is people using the scripture of God, not for the nature by which God gave us this, but to use it to condemn and to judge and to push other people down. If you're doing that, you're literally contradicting the purpose behind scripture in our lives. As Rachel Held Evans put it this way, God has chosen to reveal himself within human words, written by human hands, read with human eyes, interpreted by human brains. Whether we like to admit it or not, whenever we read the Bible, we bring with us our selfish desires. Those fallible minds, those cultural constructs and presuppositions, I really struggle to embrace the idea that person can somehow read the Bible with 100% objectivity. I believe the primary purpose of the Bible is to equip us to do good work, not to help us win an argument, not to prove other people wrong, not to support our lust for power and domination over others. To use the Bible as an idol, as a holy relic to bring into your battles each day. The purpose of scripture is to lift us up. To better us as humans as we journey along with God. But the sad part of this story is that we learn that the glory of the Lord departs Israel. It's gone. The ark is gone. And what happens next is quite fascinating. Uh, Skip over to chapter 5, verse 1. It says, After the Philistines had captured the ark, they took it to Ebenezer, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. After annihilating the Israelites, what do the Philistines do? Well, they take it from the battle to one of their primary cities, Ashdod. The Philistines at this time run on five major cities run by five major rulers. Ashdod is one of those cities. Can you imagine as they walk into the city that they are just celebrating they had defeated the Israelites. They're bringing their holy object, what they believe was their God, into their city. And where do you do with that? What they decide to do is put it in the tent of their major God. Dagon was one of the major gods of the Philistines at this time. It was believed that he had the the torso of a man and the bottom of a fish. It's fitting for a sea people believing this. He was the God of fertility and the God of crops. So they bring this holy artifact of Israel before their primary God. But what happens next is actually kind of funny. Look at verse 2. It says, They carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen over on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back up in his place. That following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen over with his face before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had come off and broken and were lying 
lying at the threshold. Only his body remains. You've got to see the humor in this story. The Philistines bring what they believe is the God of Israel before their primary God. And that night, (laughs) the statue falls over. And the next morning, they get up thinking, oh, somebody came in here and bumped it over. Let's just set it back up. And the next morning, they're completely horrified when they realize that their God has fallen over before the God of Israel. And not just that, his hands and his head have completely been lopped off. It's, it's, a, it's a literary technique here to show us that, that two deities are going at battle here. And the God of Israel has the upper hand. Not only this, but we quickly learn that Dagon's not the only one that begins to suffer in Ashdod. It says that sores begin to spread among the people. Some translate it tumors. Whatever it was, it was some sort of skin condition begin to spread among the people, ravishing their bodies with boils and sores. Not only that, but it says that the city of Ashdod was quickly taken over by rodents. Rats were eating and nestling in their city. Do you know how the Black Plague spread in the Middle Ages? It was rats. Spread of disease means sickness and death. Ashdod is completely devastated by the presence of the ark. But then a funny thing happens. They begin to realize and put two and two together that all their suffering began when the ark came into town. So they pull one of the greatest pranks in biblical times. They take the ark and they bring it to the next biggest city and say, Hey, y'all enjoyed the victory that we have. Share a little bit in it. And it says that quickly the tumors spread in that city, that the rats begin to spread in that city, and people begin to suffer. Do you remember that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Spoiler alert, just in case you didn't see it in 1981. At the end, what do you see? The Nazis have brought the Ark of God. They have, are about to open it. They believe that by opening it, they could take the contents. It would make their army invincible. But what begins to happen? The fog begins to spread among the Nazis. The spirits begin to fly out. And what happens? The Nazis' faces begin to melt. <laughs> Their bodies completely implode. But not Indiana Jones and Marion. Why? Just like the priest who had come before him, Indiana knew that if they closed their eyes, they would not see the glory of God. And so by closing their eyes, they are not consumed by the Ark of the Covenant. He lives to fight another day. This is a fascinating, you know, chronicle of history we need to keep in mind when watching Indiana Jones. But what it tells us is that the, the presence of God is powerful. That God is powerful. And that the man-made gods that we have created cannot stand before the God of creation. And the Philistines learned that a difficult way. They believed that they can bring their God and place it before the God of Israel and their God would lord over them. But what they quickly realized is their God is just made of stone and it crumbles before them. And we might smirk, we might chuckle at our ancients that they thought that this piece of wood, this piece of stone represented the God that they serve. But we might not erect stones of, or statues of gold and statues of stone and statues of wood in our lives. But we do make gods in our own life. We create idols within our own life. As one author put it, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination and your time more than God. Anything you seek that will give you what only God can give you. So we might not erect statues, but we sure do have the gods of time. 
the gods of our free time, the gods of our money, the god of our power and consumerism and people and emotion and causes and relational power and sexuality and agendas. We create this god in our life. And we serve that God with our time. We serve that God with our resources. We serve that God with all that we have. And what we should learn from this text is that the gods that we create for our lives cannot stand before the God of creation. This is not a message of your gods are going to burn in hell. This is a message of we need to recognize how just absolutely foolish it is that we believe that the gods we can create with our hands can stand against the God of eternity. How oftentimes do we choose to pour our lives into these fake and man-made gods when we have the God of creation begging us to journey with him? Inviting us into finding new life. Inviting us into finding that whatever brokenness that we are creating for our life can all be decimated and put to the side if we simply embrace the one who wants to author our story. Our gods are temporary. Our gods are fallible and brittle, and they can't stand against the God of creation that loves us. That's the lesson from this text. And the Philistines and the Israelites learned that a hard way. We'll cap off our verse here in chapter 6, verse 1. It reads, When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hands have not lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send him? So after seven months of having this ark, after seven months of the boils and the tumors and whatever else came with it, seven months of the rats that are ravishing and spreading disease of their town, the Philistines have had enough. They want to send the ark back to Israel. And so instead of just guessing, instead of doing a spiritual guess like the Israelites do, they actually bring in their spiritual gurus to discern for them what they need to do. And their, their diviners and their religious leaders say this, send the ark back, but give a, a, a guilt offering for it. And so the scripture tells us they, they put together five golden tumors. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. They put together five rats of gold and they place it on the ark. They had the ark pulled behind two mothering cows to bring it back to Israel. The idea being that this has to be a miracle, this has to be something from God, if two mothering cows will go away from their suckling calves and return the ark to Israel. And it happens. And it's an amazing story that happens. And so what can we learn from this text? This text teaches us something profound, and that is that we can't manage, we can't manipulate God. The gods we create for ourselves stand, can't stand against the God of creation. What happens to the ark after this? Well, we'll have one more interaction with the ark later on in the story of David. But then the ark is brought into the city of Jerusalem and Solomon builds its temple. It remains there until the Babylonians invade Israel and destroy the city. And then the ark is lost into the ages. It isn't taken to Babylon because there is a recorded history of what Babylon, the Babylonians took from the temple in Jerusalem. There's one particular legend that believes that the prophet Jeremiah, as he escaped Jerusalem during the Babylonian invasion, that he takes it to Egypt with him. And there is a church in Ethiopia that claims that they have the ark at this time. 
And there's a, a monk called the Keeper of the Ark who claims that he holds possession over it. I think the Ark is lost for all time. What's important for us to understand is that the Ark really doesn't matter anymore because 900 years after this story, God brings his own presence into the world through Jesus Christ. So what should we take away from this text? What do we learn about this insanely crazy story where roughly 34,000 people die, people get diseases, it's horrible. What do we learn from it? I think the thing we should take away is this. You and I need to engage God, not religious idols. Cartledge writes this, The Philistines and the Israelites seemingly acknowledged the power of God, yet their greatest desire was to not worship God. Many persons in our own day give lip service to God and engage in symbolic rituals of faith, yet their greatest desire is to not serve God, but to placate Him just enough to avert divine anger. Like the Philistines, what they really want is for God to leave them alone. This text challenges us to simply look at our lives and say, are we simply engaging religious practices in our life to simply keep God at bay? Is that what we do with our lives? Do we fill in the religious bubbles each week so that we can get what we want from God when we want something from God? Or are we fully engaging the journey with God? That's the challenge from the text. Israel learned the hard way. You can't not have a relationship with God and then try to bring God into something and find success. But the God who invites us into a story invites us to come and to follow him each day. Not bringing holy relics and idol into our lives, but bringing the true living God and to find success in that story. And so may we evaluate our lives this morning. May we come to stop asking the theological question of why did God allow this to happen? Where was God in all this? Why didn't God do what we wanted him to do? And maybe the question we should ask God this morning is this. God, what would you have me to be? What would you have me to do this day and in the days to come? Let's pray for this. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.